0: Let's take our Bibles for our Bible study this morning. Let's head to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. I would like to focus in on a section of Scripture in the midst of this chapter. Acts chapter 2. As you're turning... Uh, I want to thank you for your prayers. We had a wonderful time away. It was refreshing. And so during our time away, we did some visiting a variety of places. One of the places that we decided just to stop in, we've been there several times in the years gone by, but it's been a number of years. So we thought, well, we'll go back and visit something we're familiar with. It's nearby and spend a day doing that. So we went down to what many of you have gone to and visit down in Valley Forge you've seen that you're familiar with it you know the story but it's interesting that even though we're familiar with it and we've seen it and we've many of us have have been there what not it's interesting when you go you get some new perspective at times or you're reminded or you see things you hadn't caught before When we were down there, it was interesting, just to be reminded, this wasn't a battle site, this was an encampment. It was interesting to review and to understand that when uh, George Washington took the troops there for that several month period from 77 to 78, that when they got there, when the whole army that was with him and the camp followers of the Indians, when they got there, there were so many that they formed the fourth largest city in America at that time. So all of a sudden they had to put it together. And when they were putting it together, they put these Hundreds and hundreds of log huts up just totally ransacked the landscape. And while they're there during that period of time, we often think, man, this was the most horrible winter. It really wasn't the coldest winter. Did they suffer? Absolutely. But it was considered one of the mildest winters of that era. It was wet. It was damp. And they did suffer. There was a shortage of food. And they had a lot of disease run through the camp. In fact, so many people were afflicted by this camp that more people died during that time than in all the battles that took place up to that point. And so it was a dangerous time. It was a horrible time. But it is a time that was the birth of the American army, they call it. Because von Steuben came in and he helped organize 13 separate little armies and made them collectively work as a unit. Something that was, in fact, the, the book that he put together still used in recent up to their last century as far as drilling and training the troops. And so it was an amazing time. Some of the stories that came out of there, we don't really know about. The story about Washington going and praying frequently in that wooded section... That never came out until 1816 when a biographer by the name of Weems Weems, tried to create the story. He also created the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. There's no documentation. Did Washington pray? I have no doubt. But it was interesting to go and just revisit. And as I revisit, just get some of these facts and things set straight. I'm familiar with the text from Acts chapter 2. You are too. You've read it if you've been saved any length of time you read it. But it's good to revisit it and just get some of the facts set straight once again. The portion I want to focus in on is starting in verse 37. In verse 37 it says, Now when they heard this, that is after Peter was preaching a message, when they heard this they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost." For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or crooked generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about three thousand souls. There is so much there. Let's just stop. And the way I would like to approach it this day is to just do it very simply is just break down a study in a very simple fashion. I want to look at the text. I want to learn from the text. Then I want to talk about living out the text. So looking at the text, let's just set up the scene and let the Word of God speak to our hearts. It is a time period that you're familiar with from what we've already talked about in this series on, on Acts. It happened just days after Jesus has ascended and gone to heaven about 10 days later, on that Pentecost, that feast day, where thousands and thousands, up to a million or two Jews would be there in Jerusalem. And as that, the disciples are gathered with all these other Jews in the city of Jerusalem, whether they are gathered at the house, the upper room, as we pointed out a few weeks back, or when it said house, it could be one of the temple chambers that outside the temple, around the ring of the temple, there was classrooms for teaching. That same word is used where it says, they were in the upper room or in that house. That is that idea of one of those two places. I tend to think it's at the temple. And so while they're there and gathered and the disciples are, are, are to collectively, the 120 gather, all of a sudden they have the supernatural falling of the Holy Spirit upon them, accompanied with supernatural signs to make sure that everybody knows this is something phenomenal, something unusual. And there was that sound of the rushing wind. There was the cloven tongues of fire that appeared above them. And then there was that, that ability to be able to speak in foreign languages and share the word of God. And as a result of that, the crowd started gathering so quickly because they were, you know, whether they heard the sound or not, or whether they're seeing the cloven tongues, I don't know. But they heard the people, the, the apostles, starting to speak in these languages, and they were hearing these Galileans who were untrained, uneducated for that time period, and they're hearing them speak in their own language. And the crowds are like, what is this? And some in the crowd, they were amazed. Some are mocking these guys are drunk. Others are just totally confused and they ask what is going on? And if you were here when we talked about Peter responds as the spokesman of the group, he, speak, he stands up and speaks and he preaches most of Acts chapter 2. And as he's preaching, it's, it's a phenomenal study. You should, if you haven't done it, you should repeat it. But basically what he does as he responds in his sermon, he answers and says, hey, I'm going to explain what is happening right now. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't us. This isn't drinking. This is God working. That spirit that you and I, all of us Jews, we have heard about, we have read about in the Old Testament. He is doing something supernatural. And then he explains, he says, this is happening because of Jesus Christ. He says, and he goes on, he tells the story of Christ, rehearses it. He says, Jesus, who grew up and you saw, you heard he did all these miracles, He got crucified by you people, by our leaders. Well, he had said that when he goes back to heaven, he's going to send this Holy Spirit. And so he had to leave so that the Holy Spirit would come, and that's exactly what's happening. This is Jesus Christ alive in heaven, doing a work. He has resurrected. When David talked about not leaving his soul in hell, he wasn't talking about David himself. He was talking about the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, came out of the ground. He's back in heaven. He sent his spirit. This is how it happened. Jesus is at work. The Jesus whom you crucified, and then he concludes and he basically tells them, he says this, he says, it is happening for this one reason. Go down to the, uh, verse 36. This is the summary of what he's telling that crowd. He is saying, as he points out, he says, all of this miraculous things are happening so that all the house of Israel may know assuredly that God hath made that Jesus whom you crucified both Lord Adonai, it's a word for God, and the Messiah. He is God who came as God's messenger. Now you're in that crowd and you're hearing this and it all of a sudden strikes you, it says, whoa, wait a minute. This is proof that Jesus is God. This is proof that Jesus is doing the miracles and we killed him? A few weeks ago we cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And so the response of many of the crowd is all of a sudden impacting in verse 37, many of them are going to say, what do we do? Brothers, tell us, what do we do? We killed this Jesus. What's he going to do to us? And Peter responds, and he tells them what they need to do. That's the bulk of this verse, where he says you need to repent, and then he says you need to get baptized. And then he tells them a little bit more, talks about the remission of sin, talks about then you're going to get the Holy Spirit as well. And so the people, what do they do? Well, we already read that at the end of it, many of the people respond, up to 3,000. Now, by comparison to the hundreds of thousands there, that's a small number. But many of them, 3,000 of them, immediately reacted, responded. That's the account. count. That is what is happening. That is looking at, okay, they, what did they do? Now, can I make some application, some drawing, some lessons from that? What does this teach us? What does this tell us? What what do we look a little bit deeper with just that information? If we explore a little bit deeper, let's make some observations. The salvation of souls was and is important to God and to the early church. Hearing, seeing people hear the gospel, sharing the word of God was really important to God. God wanted it done. In fact, we know That God had already told them, you wait in Jerusalem until this day when the Spirit comes. And when the Spirit has come upon you, you shall receive power to be witnesses. And so they did. And he says, you got to start being a witness right where you're most nervous, right here in Jerusalem. Where Jesus got killed recently, where the leaders they're not in they're not in your corner. You gotta do that. Then you gotta go to the people that we don't like historically. You gotta go to the Samaritans, you gotta go everywhere, not not just to the Jews. You gotta share the gospel. And so these guys are getting impressed upon by the Spirit of God that that this is important to God. That's why He sent His Spirit to help us to do this. And the very first business that they do as their birth as a church. The very first thing they do is they're sharing the gospel. They're working together to get out. His first message is all about you folk need to have Christ as your Savior. You need Jesus. And so to me, a lesson that is critical, that is absolutely challenging, is to remember, and I know you know this, this seems so simplistic and so redundant to so many of you. But it's good to refresh our minds. Seeing souls hearing the gospel, working together to get out the gospel, that is something important to God and should be important to us if we're going to maintain being a New Testament church. There is a second that stands out. That is this, the salvation of souls is a work of God. It's a work of God. It can't be done by us alone. It's got to be a work of God done through faithful servants. You see, in this text, it's very clear That they had to wait until the Spirit came. Why is that? Why were they told to wait those extra 10 days until Pentecost, until the Spirit would come? Well part of the reason is what Jesus had told them the night before he was crucified. He said when I leave it is necessary that I go that the spirit comes because when the spirit comes he's going to be reproving the world, convicting the world of sin. He's going to be pointing out what is righteousness, what is holiness Christ. He's going to be pointing out that we lack it and so This isn't something you can do yourselves, guys. You're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to bring about the conviction. And so you'll hang on, wait. Hang out in that upper room, stay there. And when the Spirit comes, He's going to help you. He's going to give you power. He's going to give you the boldness. He's going to assist you because you can't do it on your own. And in fact, as we already read in this text, he makes allusion to the fact that God is calling these souls, in verse 39, that those who God calls. Now some think that that means the idea that God picks and chooses some to be saved. I I don't hold to that idea. I understand the Bible to clearly teach God loved the world. And God is not willing that any should perish. So God wants everybody saved. But what happens is those people can't just get saved on their own. The Spirit of God's got to be wooing them, got to be convicting them, got to be calling them. Now, can they resist? Well, according to Acts 17, they, they said the Jews resisted the Holy Spirit. They were a stick and, and, and hard-hearted people. So can people resist? Yes. But God has to be working in the hearts. So for us to do a group effort next week, a neighborhood night, that we're going to try to give out the word of God and show the love of Christ to others and to give out gospel literature and invite people to come back, we need the Spirit's help or it's going to fall flat on our face. We need to, we need to be realizing that this is a joint effort with God. This isn't something we can do in and of ourselves to be able to share the gospel. We need His help. Now this fits exactly what Paul was writing. Why Paul had said in 1 Corinthians, he talked about this idea about sharing the gospel. He says, so then neither is he that plants anything or he that waters. We don't understand this. We're not that important. We're not that brilliant that it's up to us to get somebody saved. We need to plant the seed. We need to water the seed. But God is the one who gives the increase. It's a work of God. It's a great work of God to save a soul. And he goes on, he says, but our efforts are in unison with God, and God will reward us for our contributions in getting out the gospel. We are because we are laborers together with God. The idea is I can't convince people to get saved. I can't convince you of my own strength, my own ability that you need Christ. But if I share the word of God and the spirit of God is at work, he will impress upon your heart that you must be born again. There is no name under heaven besides the name of Jesus Christ whereby you must be saved. So we need the spirit of God to assist us. We need to be working in conjunction with him. And so as we share the word of God, the Spirit then, He brings those people to a place of conviction and they have to decide. So what I see and stressed in this text is there's a cooperative effort between God and God's people to get out the gospel. They're supposed to be. The question is, is that happening in your life? There's a third thought that's, that's very important. Every person has to decide for themselves. Every individual has to make the choice whether they are wanting to be saved to go to heaven or if they're going to rely upon themselves. You see, as Peter is preaching, look at the text. It says in verse 37, they heard. It says that they were convicted. It talks about they asking. But when Peter is talking to them as a group, he says, repent every single one of you. This isn't a group effort. This isn't a group choice. This isn't a family effort. You have to decide for yourself whether or not you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior so you can get into heaven or not. It's not up to your parents. It's not up to your preacher. It's not up to your your siblings. It's up to you making that decision for yourself. And so he highlights that. That every individual must personally have a time when they personally ask Christ to be their Savior. So you go on vacation. You go traveling. There is something consistent in some of the places we visited or you have visited during the summer is that you don't do you know, a group ticket, so to speak. You know, to get on the flight, you've got to have your own ticket. To get into some of the amusement parks, you've got to have your own ticket. To have a cruise ride, you need your own ticket. It's got to be your own wristband. It can't be somebody else doing it for you. In the same way you need to ask Christ yourself, you need to call upon him to be your savior. And so that's highlighted in this text. As he's talking to all these Jewish peoples, he is saying each and every one of you personally, because they, as a group, thought because they're Jews, they're going to get into heaven. Uh Uh-uh. Just because you go to a church doesn't mean you get into heaven. It's what you do personally. And so when he says, okay, you, each one of you, he gives them requirements. And there's a requirement stated right away that is a challenging requirement when Peter responds. Peter says the first thing they need to do, the first command he gives them, what is it? Repent. Now I remember somebody visiting our service a number of years ago that said, you will never find repentance in the Bible. It's like, what? And they say, no, the concept of repentance was was actually Old Testament, but never in the New Testament. What do you do with Acts 2.37? I remember this conversation, and they said, well, that's really not what it says. Well, it says, verse 38, it says, Peter said unto them, repent. And so, to explain a little bit further, this word that's used here, is a word that they would understand. It's the same word that was used by John the Baptist when he said you have to bring forth, you know, this fruit of repentance. Same thing that Jesus had spoken about. It's the same word that shows up multiple times in the book of Acts. Even at one passage, God commands all men to repent. It's it's, it's this idea. The word that is used there means change direction or change your thinking change your actions. Going this way, and all of a sudden, an about face. Though when it's used in the uh, what's called the LX, the Septuagint, which was the very common Bible that was used at the time Jesus was there, because some of the proselytes, they didn't understand Hebrew, so they translated it into the common language of Greek. And so it was commonly used by Jews who were showing up at Jerusalem, from other regions, they would read the LXX or Septuagint. In that uh, Greek translation, when they put the word repentance, they were always, whenever it shows up, it always was translated or put in place of the Hebrew word, which means a genuine sorrow over something that you have done has the idea of I'm going to change because I feel bad or guilty about something that I did or done or my attitude. And so the word that Peter is using to all of these people, many of them who would understand and read the, the Septuagint, he is saying to them, you need to have a genuine sorrow. You need to change your mind, your thinking, your thoughts about Jesus. You crucified him weeks ago. You need to change your thinking. He is both Lord and Christ. He's not a criminal. That's what you did with him. You got rid of him. You exchanged Barabbas for him. There's got to be a change. There's got to be a brokenness that we did that. That we were re- partially responsible or complicit in putting him on the cross. Well, Peter's made it clear. This was designed by God to pay for your sins. And so you've got to change your thinking. In fact, he even makes that comment. You got to change your thinking about who's influencing you right now. Do you catch where he said that later on? He said, "Save yourself." Go down a couple of verses. Save yourself from this untoward, this crooked generation. Stop letting people around you dictate how you think. Stop letting the Jewish leaders control what you think about Jesus. Stop letting the crowd. Yeah, influence you to just go along with with whatever they want. You need to be independently thinking for yourself, what will I do with Jesus? You need to change your thinking about him. Change who influences you. And so that repentance is very, very important. It's a command in this passage. And then he gives them a second command in the passage. Be baptized Every one of you in the name of the Lord are in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. Again, this is a command. It's a command. You need to do this right away. Something else that stands out, he makes it clear. This is necessary for every one of you. It's not a group thing. You need to be baptized. He says that you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, which is a whole other discussion about the idea. Was it sufficient? What do we say? Well, here he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Somehow, some way, baptism is associated with the remission or forgiveness of sins. That's the rub with churches today. That is the difference between what we might teach or what somebody else might teach. What I grew up hearing and what now I teach. What does he mean? How is baptism associated with the remission of sins? Now, there's a whole bunch of us that learned it this way. We were told that baptism, therefore, is necessary to get forgiveness of sins. We were told that baptism is necessary to complete the process of forgiveness of sins. And if we're not baptized, we can't get into heaven. That, that is not what the Bible teaches. I mean, immediately, what character comes to mind that disputes that? The thief on the cross. Because Jesus said to the thief who couldn't get baptized, today you'll be... Okay. So let me just respond because I'm amazed by the number of books I picked up in studying and how many websites today are propagating this idea that baptism is essential to complete your salvation. That's not true. That is not true. Several reasons why. The Bible clearly teaches we are saved by faith and not good works we do. Saved by faith, not of works. We read that, lest we should boast. It is by his mercy he saved us, not by the works of righteousness which we have done. Going to church doesn't get you saved. Getting baptized in this tank, it doesn't wash away your sins knowing the Ten Commandments, being able to quote the books of the Bible in order, that doesn't get us into heaven. Giving money, being, being one who looks... Being an American doesn't get us into heaven. We get into heaven by faith in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, he says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that, he has, that God has raised him, he says, you're going to be saved. Baptism isn't in there. In fact, you go a little bit further, and you go through the book of Acts, and in every other text through the rest of the book of Acts, where he's speaking in a very personal sense about you getting forgiveness of sin, he never again mentions baptism in the same phrase. He says, I can hear, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's already said that. Repent and therefore be converted, but your sins be blotted out. Whosoever believes shall receive remission of sins. Through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins. By him all that believe are justified. We believe that through grace the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, we're going to be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Now is baptism important? Yes. But it's not to complete your salvation. It's not to enhance your salvation. All that was necessary, is necessary, was necessary, was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His death. His shedding of his blood. Not the water in this tank, it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us. It says in the scriptures that God showed his love towards us, and that while we were yet, Christ died for us, much more than being justified by what? His blood. His blood, we shall be saved. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says. He makes it clear that when he's on the cross and he's ready to die, he says, It is, or what's the word mean? Paid. Okay. He says, We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Jesus doesn't have to keep on dying one time. His sacrifice was a sufficient sacrifice. In fact, taking a step further, you know, if, if baptism was necessary to complete people's salvation, Paul was a terrible apostle. Because Paul says, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you in Corinth. He goes on, he says, I came to preach, not to baptize you, but to preach the gospel. In fact, we know that baptism is not necessary to complete salvation. If so, the gospel has been changed. And the Word of God says, here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. It's all about Jesus, not about us. It's about what Jesus did, not what we do. Can I add one other thought here? The Bible clearly teaches baptism came after somebody got saved. In the New Testament, he says very clearly, make disciples, then get them baptized. We read, he says, then they that gladly received his word in this text, after they repented, received, then they were baptized. Repentance, then baptism. When Philip is preaching the word of God to that eunuch as they're on the road, and the eunuch says, I want to get baptized, Philip says, you can't. Unless you believe with all your heart, then you can get baptized. Believe first. The eunuch responds and says, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe He died for me. Then they go down into the water. Belief, then baptism. So then we come back to this very text, which is the issue, which is the problem text. How do we explain this text that says that you need to be baptized for the remission of sins? It's very easy, folk. It's not complicated. It's grammar. Okay, that just turned most of you off. Okay. But it's simple grammar in their language as well as in our language. We have what we call prepositions that work in different fashions. The for in the English is a preposition of expectation or a preposition of explanation. The expectation is I want something to accomplish something. Okay, or the idea I want the result of something because of the result. I'll illustrate it this way. Okay, wanted for crimes. People who were infamous or famous for crimes. The preposition of expectation. We want them so they can do crimes. Well, that's that's not what that meant. Okay, wanted for crimes. It meant. Want, the proposition of explanation, wanted because of crimes committed. Would you agree with that? Yes? Okay. So when you take that same logic and grammar back to the New Testament, you look at the passage that says, okay, baptism for the remission of sins, it's one of those two. And consistently with Scripture, what he's saying Get baptized because of the remission of sins. Not so you can get forgiven. That's already been shown by Scripture. That's not, that's not true. But baptism because repent and afterwards get baptized because your sins have been forgiven. And so this text isn't that complicated. However, I'm amazed by how many people struggle with it. That they put something there that's not there. Can I give you just a couple other thoughts? Then we'll wrap it up with the living. The faithful believers that God uses are those with unswerving obedience to Jesus. I'm talking about the people who 120 gathered for prayer, stayed in Jerusalem when it wasn't their hometown. They're there. There's just been opposition in recent weeks to them and Jesus. They, at that first night, are fearful of what's going on before they see Jesus. And he said, stay. And they stay. And then he says, when the Spirit comes upon you, what I want you to do is be witnesses. Just like he had told them that when he ascended. He said, make disciples. Share the word of God. Well, all of a sudden, that first chance when the Spirit comes, they boldly obey the Spirit of God, the words of Jesus Christ. They go out and they speak. As an opportunity came to them, they stand up and boldly preach Jesus Christ. Whom you crucify... think about it, Peter is standing, and there's thousands, thousands. What is the number one uh, number one thing that people say they 're afraid of doing? speaking in front of people, number one by far any of you any of you have that fear? Yes, no, nobody 's raising their hands. great, okay, okay, some of us don 't have that fear that 's obvious, okay. But Peter, we don't know his personality. Peter gets up and he speaks. There's big numbers. Some of those people in there are mocking him. I Trust me, that's intimidating when people make faces. I love you. And some of you make faces that intimidate me. Okay. <laughs> and so Peter's getting up and he's speaking for this crowd. And some of them have criticized. Some of them just recently killed his savior. Because he keeps saying, whom you crucified, whom you crucified. This could very well be a crowd going bad. And what does he do? He speaks the word of God in obedience. And he's sharing it very, very pointedly, very bluntly, very compassionately sharing with them. Then he makes this comment to them. This is really important. He says, hey, every one of you who receives God's God's." receives Christ, you're also going to receive the Holy Spirit. Think about it. This crowd is Jews. Do they, have they ever read about the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do they know that the Holy Spirit is God? Yes. Yes. They know their Old Testament. They know there's been. Have they, have they heard from the Scriptures that one day God is going to send His Spirit upon all? Yes. It's part of that covenant mentioned in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33. And now these people who who know this, these people, they're there worshiping. They're there because maybe mechanical, but a lot of these people came a long distance. So they're genuine in wanting to worship God. They're genuine, especially those people that are from those those 15 other nations mentioned. They're there, and they, they want to do what's right. If they were told, you can get the Holy Spirit... Do you think they'd get excited about it? This would be a plus. This would be, this would be like, whoa. And they're seeing these miracles happening right in front of their eyes. And that's, this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we've already said that. This is the Holy Spirit working. And you can have that same Holy Spirit. So for Peter to say this to the crowd, and he goes on he says, in other words, it's not just us alone that get it. Not just me, not just the 12 and he's making it clear, it can even go to your offspring. And he goes on, do you see where he made that comment? He says um, in verse 39, it is promised to you, to your children, to those who are afar off. Who's the afar off ones? It could be the Gentiles, exactly. Could it be Jews who live in other lands? Do you remember the Jews in Jerusalem thought the Jews outside of Judea were second class Jews? So he's making it very clear who gets the Holy Spirit. Every single person who believes. That is a phenomenal truth. That is an amazing truth that these people are hearing. Now the disciples have heard that in the upper room. Now it's being broadcast publicly. And so he's telling them this phenomenal, phenomenal thought. They can have this Holy Spirit who will comfort, who will help, who will guide. Amazing. Amazing. Something else that stands out, every single one of these people who believed, it says that they were going to respond with baptism. I I want to pause. I I don't want to go further because I have read, I have heard, but I did some reading on this. I am surprised by some people discounting this text. The way that they do it, it says in verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized and they were added the same day unto them 3,000. I look at that, and to me, it says that every single one of those who got saved got baptized. It seems to me that's very clear. And it seems to me that there was how many of them? Okay, so I've read, I've heard people discuss this, and I've, in my reading, this repeatedly came up because it says it's happened the very same day. It implies every single one of them. They did this without hesitation. Here's what some, some have said, no, it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen. There, and the reason being is Jerusalem is in a dry land. There's not enough water to baptize 3,000 people. And how could you baptize 3,000 people in a single day? It's impossible. It can't be done. So this is ju- just... Can't take it at face value. And I'm sit down and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. How long does it take to baptize somebody? What do you think? Bring it back up. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's just, say, let, let's just think this thing through. Does the text tell us who did the baptizing? No. Okay. How many disciples were there to get started? There's 120. How many apostles? There's 12. Okay. Just take the apostles. How many people could 12 apostles, how long would it take them to baptize 3,000 people? Okay. Let me, let me give you the numbers. I worked it out. But I'm sorry. Okay. okay. So, so if it's just the 12, and they spend one minute with each, per, with each person, okay? That's, uh, I can do a lot with one person in, 12, in one minute. I can hold them under a long time. Okay. That's, that's just over four hours. It's not impossible to baptize that many people in a single day. When I was in the Ukraine, we were, I was involved with a group of Baptists. I think I told you this. Well, a few years back, and we were doing baptism, I was the American, so therefore, you know, you can help baptize. There was like six of us, and we were baptizing something like 50 people. And we were in the river. And as we were baptizing, I think I told you this. The one little old lady came up. She wanted to be baptized by the American And she came up, and as she stood next to me, she kept on pushing, and I kept on backing up. And, you know, because it was just awkward. Um, And so as I backed up further into the water, she was only about this much, and she's still pushing. (laughs) So it didn't take much to baptize her, but the problem was when I put her under, I was already in the current. And so... They grabbed her foot, they grabbed my hand, they pulled us back. So can you baptize a lot of people? Yeah. Now here's the other discussion that people throw up, which I I don't understand this. What do they think Israel is? What do they think Jerusalem is? There's not enough water to baptize 3,000 people. How much water do you need? They're not drinking it. They're getting dunked and they're walking away. Okay, l- let me give you some facts about this, okay, about that time period and about that era that come from documentation, that come from archaeological records that just indicate that that's a spurious argument, that's a foolish argument. There was, in Jerusalem, there was the Pool of Siloam down in the underground part of the city. That was a good good area. You could baptize people there. There was also the Pool of Bethesda that was there. Remember the man who they said when the water was, was disturbed that people try to jump in and get healed, that was around the, right around the temple area, about the five colonnades. That's a decent area that was a couple feet, two, two or three feet deep, that they, at that time they suppose There was also what's called the Upper Gihon Spring and the Lower Gihon Spring that were right outside the city, and some of the waters would flow through. When those, uh, those upper spring of Gihon, when it was the time of the year where there was rain... It would cover as much as three acres and be 40 foot deep. When is Pentecost? What time of the year? Spring. Is there early rains in Israel? Yes. Plus, on top of that, and this is around the city. It doesn't say they got baptized in the city or right there at that. They could have spread out and done the baptisms. Also, something that records have shown, in, um, in Israel, they would have, and in a lot of different Jewish sites, they would have these mikvahs. Mikvahs were these small tanks. The best thing I can illustrate is it's like that tank there about the same size where you could get a couple people walk down into it like eight foot by four foot. They could walk down in and it was deep enough that they could submerse themselves. They did this especially in the intertestamental period. They did this as part of their purification rituals that they were adding to the Old Testament, they, would, they were putting these practices. And so they became very popular. Records around Jerusalem, excavations around Jerusalem, and documentations indicate that on that what's called the Hill of Ascent, down in the, uh, the bottom part of the valley, and as they would be approaching the city, they would sing the songs of Ascent, the psalms that you were teaching on, right? The psalms of Ascent that people who were pilgrims would be doing this and heading up into the city, they would have these pools that they could just do while they're singing, uh, doing their, their ritual. They could step in and do a symbolic uh, purification and then go back on the road. Along the road that leads up to Jerusalem, they have uncovered to date, they have uncovered 125 and they suggest up to 500 of these along that route. And they were there at the time of Jesus. So for somebody to say, well, they didn't have enough water. Study your Bible. Study the context. There was plenty of water. And besides, the real real answer to this is, you know, this question that people would throw up, the real answer is simply what? The Bible says it happened. So it happened. So we get all that and we say, okay, what do we do with this? Can I make some closing comments on it? Here's what I learned. And let me me do this today just in a really weird sense. Let me do this. Can I speak to those of you who studying the Bible has kind of never been done? It's new to you. Hearing Bible truth, hearing some of what we're talking about, this is strange. This is different. This isn't the normal church type that you've been sitting in. And so hearing some of what we said today, you're like, I've never heard some of this before. I never heard baptism isn't critical to, being, to getting into heaven. I always thought that I had to be baptized to complete my salvation. May I say to you, who that you're first exposed to the gospel, or you've been here time after time, and you have yet to call upon Christ as your Savior, may I suggest that this text is saying to your heart, the lesson to live it is you need to recognize the personal sacrifice Jesus made for you. You need to repent of your sin and ask Christ to forgive you of your sin and give you the gift of eternal life. You must be born again or you shall not see the kingdom of God. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You need, you need to ask Christ to be your Savior. You might be a teen, you might be 20s, you might be hundred and twenty. You need to be born again. It's your personal choice. You need to make the right choice. So that group, having said that, let me talk to those of you who are young in the Lord. You're saved. You're born again. You may even come to church periodically or regularly, but you're not really familiar with a lot of Scripture. You really haven't studied a whole lot. You're just, you, you, you're what we would call a young believer, or what, G- what Paul would call an immature believer. Still haven't grown that much in the Lord. Or you just got saved. Maybe you got saved in the last few months, weeks, days. Can I suggest this to you? Number one, when you got saved, be absolutely assured of this. God gave you his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit is living within you. It comes to everyone whom God calls everyone who believes. He is with you everywhere you go all the time, which is challenging because I've got to be careful because he's within me. I don't want to take him into places that are, that are reprehensible to him. I don't want to be watching things that are disgusting to him. He's here. And when there's conviction in the heart, understand it's the Spirit of God trying to help you to grow out of those actions, those habits, but also with that in mind, understand he's there all the time to help you. He is your best helper. He is the one who will strengthen you. He is the one who will give you hope. He is the one who will guide you into all things. I know we need one another. I know education is important. I understand you know, the different aspects of getting some insights from others. But let me tell you this. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is living within you. Rely upon him. Rely upon him. Understand, he's with you. And learn that you need to be more in tune and in touch, if I can use those words, with that spirit of God within you. By reading the word, by praying, by yielding yourself. We'll talk about that some more in the next weeks. Then as well, if you're a young Christian, you have never done it, be baptized in obedience to what Jesus has said. In obedience to what God has said. And let me assure, let me just make sure you understand, baptism is not sprinkling. The Word has the idea of putting under the water to show the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he did for you. Can't be done by sprinkling. This, this is a command. That God has put in the word of God. That you who have been forgiven of your sins because of the remission of sins get baptized. To show this is what Jesus did for me and I want to identify with this Jesus. This was a big thing for those Jews. They were identifying with Jesus whom the leaders had crucified. And so very important that you need to do it and say I am going to live for Christ. Get baptized. Let me mention this to the bulk of you. The bulk of you is what we would describe biblically, mature believers. People who are growing in Christ, who have a walk with him, who are consistent in the word of God. What do we walk away from this? A couple different thoughts. One of it is, obviously, you need to be familiar with the teachings and the life of Jesus Christ. That's Peter. He could tell them all about Jesus. And he fills, he fills his message, if you go back and read it through, with Scripture. He's just loaded with that, quoting the Bible, you know, and memorizing the Bible. And in fact, it's just, it's so incumbent. When I was away, um, you were on my mind, and I was at one church, and it was like they had a tool there that I thought would be phenomenal for some of you, some way that is systematic in helping to memorize verses. Parents, I would use this. I would buy these things. I got them at a real discount and put them in the store for you. If you can't afford it, let me know. I'll pay for it. But it's just simple things. It's organized very simply, and it's taken like the ABCs. And every verse that, like the A, it has a verse that is with an A word, all we like sheep have gone astray. The B is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. To expose your kids or your family or you as a couple to some type of memory program, it is critical, it is essential that we get the Word of God in us. But there are some tools that might be helpful to you. And again, if you have questions, you can see me about it. But then I'd say this, you've got to be faithful to the teachings and standards of Jesus. Jesus told the apostles, you've got to go out, make disciples, and baptize them, teaching them all to observe all things I've commanded. What did they do? They were faithful. They did it. They didn't change because of the times. Okay, so while we were away, we went to an interesting event, a baseball game in the 1880s. I think the date was 1886. Do you realize they played baseball different back then? Some of the things that they did, anybody know anything about this historic baseball? Do anybody know what the, some of the things they do or did do or don't do compared to today? What's that? Uh, no. <laughs> not in 1886, not at that time. Nobody wore a baseball glove, everything was done by hand. The baseball is about the same size, just slightly softer, but it's still a hard ball. I mean, when you hear it get off their shins or hands, you're going, ooh, ouch, but they wouldn't say ouch. Anyway, it's a regular baseball. They didn't call balls and strikes unless you were slowing down the game. Then somebody would step up and call balls and strikes. Otherwise, if you were, if I was, and the pitching was done underhand, like softball. See, it's a gentleman's game. We want exercise, We don't have the professionals yet. We don't have the teams, but there's no standard. So I would walk up if I were pitching, and I would say, okay, where do you want the ball? And you would show me where you want it because I want you to hit. I want you to run to get exercise. I want to get you out too. Okay, so, (laughs) so you would pitch this way. They had a rule. That's basically the rule was if the ball hit once and got caught, you're out. So it wasn't just a fly ball. And so in the game we're watching, the ball is hit, it goes out of bounds, it hits a tree. And the umpire, who doesn't call a whole lot, he just says, tree! (laughs) That means it hit the tree attached to the ground, and if you're going to get him out, you got to catch it before it hits the ground a second time. The umpire didn't call people out. When you are running to the base, or you slide, whatever, you and whoever was the defensive player, you have to agree between you what the call is if it gets a little bit too, too competitive, then the umpire will step in. And it wasn't standardized fields. They didn't, you know, they, they, they basically had a basic idea how far the, but you're playing in pastures. Okay. So every field had its, yeah. Okay. You know what? It's got all kinds of possibilities. Okay. That are there. The other thing in the, where we were at, the field out there, like where you guys are up there, that was the, where the train ran that was going around this whole complex. And so they're playing ball, and the train's up there. And they said, when the train comes by, we stop playing. Because the right fielder, we don't want him to get run over. That makes perfect sense. Okay. But they said back in those days, since the train was the big thing of that day, they would all stop and salute the train. That was very customary because that was the invention changing America. And so this game was very interesting. And what, I've, what I walked away thinking is, you know, this whole idea was, you know, got kind of no real rules. It it's evolved to where there's very stringent rules. I mean, they can change them at the leadership. But basically, it's more systematized. It's more organized. It's more, you know all over the same size of the field for the most part and same rules everything is basically more standardized it strikes me that churches are doing just the opposite culturally churches years ago had things standardized but we have gone into this let's just everybody have do whatever they want you decide what you want and it's all about fun it's all about you getting some exercise spiritually but that's not what Jesus intended. Jesus intended that here are his teachings and we hold to his teachings no matter if it's popular or unpopular. We hold to the idea of repentance even if somebody says, oh, that's a, that's a bad word in today's. No. People need to repent. Okay, We hold to baptism by immersion to show that you're saved. Why? Because the Bible said that. The Bible declared these things. So we don't change just because of the crowd. We don't change just because some might mock us. We hold true to the teachings of Jesus. You can't do that if you don't know them. But you need to, we need to hold true to the the teachings. We also need to be willing and ready to share the word of God. That's where we all struggle. I bet you, I bet you you thought the same thing I've thought recently. I want to share the gospel more but it scares me. I bet you you're in that same boat. Maybe not. Maybe I'm the only one in this room. But we need to be ready and willing to share the gospel. That's why we want to do things. Like next week, the neighborhood night. We want to do that to help you to take advantage of the opportunity where we can work together with God to have that happen. So living out this text, how does it apply to you? Are you at that phase where you need to get born again? Are you in that Initial phase as a new convert, you need to, you need to start the steps of following the Lord by baptism. You, you, you've done those things. I need to get in more into the Word of God and the Word of God into me. Apply it, take it, live it. As we close this day, you commit to the Lord, Father. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their attentiveness. Thank you for their patience. Help us to follow Jesus Christ to the best of our abilities. To take this text and not just learn the facts, but to live them where we honor you to the best of our abilities. Lord, we want to do this. Help us to do that very thing.